Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, from Ethiopia to America, philanthropist and children's advocate Galila Puck talks about her upcoming Atlanta visit and partnering with Georgia State Center for Studies on Africa and its diaspora. Also, I mean, I think most black doesn't crack. I think (laughs) it's a cute notion and I think it makes us feel good. Most of us look a lot younger than we actually are. I'm actually 87 years old. (laughs) So I hear black don't crack all the time. A new documentary, The Black Beauty Effect, explores the multi-billion dollar black beauty industry and those influential within the business. All that is just ahead. But first, yes, it is Election Tuesday and many municipalities here in Metro Atlanta have races for city council, school board or mayor. And as we know, some voters are heading out throughout the metro area. So WABE Pox reporter Raul Bali shares a sampling of races and referendums. In DeKalb County, one referendum continues property tax relief for homeowners with a homestead exemption. The other continues a 1% special sales tax for projects including roads and parks, with the money being divided between the county and cities in DeKalb. Voters have to pass both referendums for both to take effect. In Atlanta, there are elections involving five of nine members of the Board of Education. Then there's a host of mayoral races. In Brookhaven and Stonecrest in DeKalb County, in College Park and Hapeville in Fulton County, the rest of College Park and Morrow in Clayton County, along with Austell, Powder Springs, and Smyrna in Cobb County, and in Auburn and Lilburn in Gwinnett County. Raul Bally, WABE News. And we turn to our other politics reporter, Sam Greenglass, who has more on how to cast your ballot. The polls will be open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Make sure to verify your polling place first. Some municipalities run their own elections in odd years and may use different locations. You can do that by calling your county election office or visiting the Georgia Secretary of State's My Voter page online. Voters will need to present a photo ID, such as a driver's license, to cast a ballot. Voters over age 75 can skip the line by alerting a poll worker. For voters casting absentee ballots, they must be received by the election office by the time the polls close. Sam Greenglass, WAB News. And for more information about what's on the ballot in your community, visit the online WABE election hub. It's at wabe.org slash election2023. At a programming note, we'll have a recap of all the results during tomorrow's Closer Look. Georgia Supreme Court, by unanimous opinion, is suspending the law license of a South Georgia attorney due to his felony conviction conviction early this year. 
Why? Well, attorney W. McCall Calhoun Jr.'s participation in the January 6, 2021 U.S. Capitol riot is the reason why. Calhoun has been a member of the State Bar of Georgia since 1990. He will be suspended from practicing law pending the outcome of the appeal of his federal court felony and misdemeanor judgments of guilt. A special master, Loray Dixon-Moore, recommended the suspension. Activists charged with racketeering over alleged ties to a movement aimed at halting the construction of Atlanta's Public Safety Training Center have less than 24 hours to surrender to authorities. More than 60 so-called Stop Cop City activists were arraigned in Fulton County Superior Court yesterday, as we hear from Shemaine Cruz. Georgia prosecutors say they've collected five terabytes worth of evidence supporting their decision to indict the individuals. The judge overseeing the case, Kimberly Esmond Adams, is giving defense attorneys about four months to review the findings, meaning final plea hearings won't take place until next summer. At the arraignment, Adams read each their charges and connected the activists with a public defender as needed. Most are from out of state, and some also face charges of domestic terrorism and money laundering. The judge issued warrants for the arrest of at least two people who have left the country and did not appear in court. Shemaine Cruz, WABE News. That was inside the courtroom. Outside, demonstrators called for the charges to be dropped, and WABE's Julian Virgin was there. Drop, drop, drop the charges! Nearly 100 protesters rallied in support of the defendants. Community activist Kamal Franklin led the demonstrations. 61 people have been charged with RICO charges, and they need to see that the larger community is supporting them. Advocates are demanding charges be dropped and an end to the construction of what opponents call Cop City. Stop Cop City! Julian Virgin, WAB. Well, let's talk gas prices. The average price for a gallon of gas in Georgia keeps falling as the state continues to have one of the lowest prices in the country for regular unleaded fuel. That's according to Motoring Group AAA. And we'll hear more from WABE's Alex Helmick. Georgia's average price of $2.90 a gallon is down another five cents from a week earlier. And that price is more than 50 cents a gallon below the national average. Georgia is only behind Texas for the lowest price in the country. That's in large part due to Governor Brian Kemp suspending the state's gas tax, but that expires in less than a week unless it gets renewed, something Kemp did several times last year. Alex Helmick, WAB News. Travelers passing through Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson Airport can now see art made by Native American artists with ties to the Southeast region. WAB's Emily Wu Pearson was at the exhibit's opening. Georgia's rich history includes the stories of the Cherokee and the Muscogee, the indigenous people who were the first to call the state home. A new exhibit in the airport highlights that heritage while honoring the present-day work of Native American artists. The exhibit is called This Land Calls Us Home and features art that integrates the importance of ancestral homelands and tradition with what it means to be a Native American artist today. And I'm a generational waver, so I'm used to going out and harvesting my weaving materials and my dye materials. Vivian Garner Cottrell is one of the featured artists. She has two woven multicolored baskets on display. I'm Cherokee, national treasure, and I use uh, the different patterns. Uh, The one that's most prominent is the unbroken friendship. She's taught her kids and her grandkids how to gather material for weaving, like her mother and her grandmother before her. She says having her art displayed in such a prominent place is overwhelming and an honor. 
Jess Bernhardt is the program manager for ATL Airport Art. We didn't want it to feel like a historical exhibit, but more of a, you know, these are people who are living and working in this region now um, and acknowledge the importance of that. The exhibit is part of a partnership with the airport and the Global Ministries Program of the United Methodist Church. It'll be on display for a year. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. And finally, I need everyone to stop. That includes Daniel, LaShawn, Tiffany, and Sawyer. Everyone stop. Pay attention, listeners. Is this you? Well, hold on to your belly that shakes like a bowl of jelly. I wrote that. Closer Look is looking for the best amateur Santa Claus laugh, greeting, or cheer. You decide. No cheating if you're the real Santa. All entries can be submitted via social media or email me, rose at wab.org, be video or audio. And our esteemed Closer Look Santa Claus judges will decide the winner. Who are they? We don't know because we haven't asked anybody yet. And by the way, please, please, only one entry per household. Who's the best amateur Santa Claus? That's what we want to know. That's it. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Imagine moving to the United States as a teenager along with your family. Now, for some, the change in culture and tradition and perhaps even language can be quite overwhelming. But we also know bringing along one's native cultures and traditions are just as important. And my next guest can speak to that quite well. From Ethiopia to America, philanthropist and children's advocate advocate Galila Puck is a partner in global creative director for the Wolfgang Puck Group of Companies, as well as the founder of Dream for Future Africa Foundation. Well, she's coming to Atlanta this week for a visit to Georgia State University. She's an external member of Georgia State's Center for Studies on Africa and its Diaspora, also known as CSAD. And also, well, yeah, we'll celebrate some Ethiopian culture. So I want to welcome Gilila Puck to Closer Look. Thank you for taking the time. Hi. Let's go back. I was asking you about when you were... I think a teenager and you were coming over to America and what were your aspirations then? You know, I was a teenager arriving um, uh, in, in America. At that time, obviously, you know, Ethiopia was under leadership of the Red Terror. Uh, so we were escaping. Uh, most of the teenagers who were leaving uh, Ethiopia to find a better opportunity, a better 
uh, a safe space and America mm -hmm. opened the arms for me. And uh, so my aspiration was uh, to uh, most importantly, to be safe um, mm -hmm. and, and uh, as well as to better education. Um, and then life, you know, un unfolded its own zone. I, yeah. I, I, it's been a long time now. When you think back to the, those first, uh, I guess maybe the first month, you, you all, it was in L.A., right? You all moved to L.A.? Yes, I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, my aunt and uncle with the three kids were living here already. So wow. they took me under their wing. What was that like? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay, <laughs> so arriving in L.A., oh. I do have to tell you, I was shocked because... <laughs> You know, living in Ethiopia, you thought all Americans uh, uh, cities have the big skyscrapers. Mm -hmm. And um, I was arriving at LAX thinking I'm going to be seeing, you know, the skyscrapers. But what I found was a gorgeous uh, palm trees and blue skies. Yeah. So that was a, uh, that was my first interaction with Los Angeles. How would you describe being able to, I guess, in a sense, not only bringing some of your cultural traditions from Ethiopia, but also, you know, getting acclimated to some new and different cultures and traditions? Well, um, you know, I've always been open-minded and welcoming learning. It's, that's always been, I think that's part of being a creative person mm -hmm. when you are uh, completely open to absorb or smell the air uh and 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 put it in creative uh medium so i've i've always been interested in in learning about new histories new cultures mm -hmm. so that really helped me out a lot uh, uh adjusting to new 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 spaces and new countries and 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 I do have to say growing up I did do a little bit of traveling so that helped a lot. And I'm yes. curious how often are you telling your story to also to Im other immigrant children now and and you've been an advocate for children's for children for so yeah. long you you tell this story your own journey you share that. I do. You know that's something I recently started to do because I'm actually a very private person. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of, I've, I've been doing philanthropy since, uh, God knows, since the late 90s. Uh, but I I do feel now, you know, since the 90s, technology has changed. Uh, and and there's a way of communicating. And, and it's important to share your, your stories, not only your success, also your struggles. This way that uh, people who, can relate to you in that that they're not by themselves going mm -hmm. through a struggle period of time particularly this new generation yeah you know they are the the social media babies in the internets and they think life just it's you know what you see on 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 social media and all the social media platforms uh the you think uh life just happened. Mm -hmm. Nobody shares about their struggles and everybody shares only about their happy moments mm -hmm. and where they are partying or where they're traveling. Life is not that. And success is, is, is really 
uh, you got to pay your dues. You got to find your passion, find your voice, work towards those uh, goals. And by looking at the social media, uh, I think the the generation is very lost. Mm -hmm. So I think sharing all of this, I feel like I could connect to, I can connect with the community uh, to be able to uh, share my stories. And when you think about, as I mentioned, coming into the segment, you've done so much modeling, fashion, you're in the restaurant industry, you're a businesswoman, you're a philanthropist, you have a lot going on. How do you balance all of that? And, you know, when you need to disconnect, you know, I don't know if this this trip to Atlanta, Atlanta's a great place to disconnect, but you won't be able to technically disconnect. But we know when you need to disconnect and take a break, what do you do? Well, balance, you just hit it to the nose where balance is it's always the hardest thing for me. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, you when you are um, dealing with uh, work, uh, many agendas, particularly, uh, you know, raising the boys, you know, I have, I'm a, uh, a mother of two teenage boys, helping them navigate the world, mm-hmm. um, um, managing their life. Um, there's always, uh, they are the number one uh, priorities in my life, no matter what the yeah. work, everything else comes after. So m- perhaps like I do have to say, sometimes I don't have much time for friendships i do miss a lot of birthday parties of friends or or do not do this uh friendship lunch or uh ladies lunches or uh none of that uh i i am not part of any of mm-hmm. uh uh friendship uh, uh, th- that part of my life is always uh i would say suffering in that sense <laughs> Uh, so, you know, it's, it's balancing. It is hard, but I think, um, you, you go through the journey and then you do what's important. And then when you do see what you, when you work that hard, and then when you see the payoff and you say, okay, well, someday I'll get back to this agenda at, at some point in my life, but it's always, you know, what's in front of you, uh, what you have to do. And for me right now is I think, the children, mm-hmm. uh, the the work space, and the creativity, the the philanthropy, and when I see how many childrens and uh, families uh, uh, I'm helping, that inspires me. And I would say, okay, maybe one part of my life may not be perfect, but yeah. you know, but yeah. at least the other ones are uh, flowering. So that is inspiring to me. And part of that is obviously your found the dream for Africa Foundation started in in 2010. For our listeners who may not be familiar with the work that you've been doing, what is the mission of Dream for Africa? So, Dream for Future Africa Foundation is basically um, it is we uh, we um, do a vocational uh, training programs um, and. Um, we generally find sponsors, anchors the sponsors, and then we launch a program. Uh, we have computer training uh, uh, programs. We have sewings. Uh, we have microfinancing for those who wants to go into uh, small businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do have 
also a program with women living with HIV. We're about, I would say, about 800 women we're supporting. For those women, we do uh, even like housekeeping, how to sustain themselves in in just basic work. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's mainly uh, sustaining uh, themselves, you know, uh it is a vocational it's it's directed on a vocation focused on vocational training programs and and for me i always believe training is the key to mm-hmm. expand the middle class in africa and and africa has such a big nation of young upcoming generation and uh, those who don't make university what do they do with their life so i think it is important whether it's hotel management Mm-hmm. Whether it's in service industries, whether it's and and leveraging from the resources of that Africa gives us, mm-hmm. and for them to understand the resources is there and what to do with it, and the basic training can can help them discover those those opportunities. When you think back to 2010, when this foundation first began, and where you are now, and not only just in shaping so many lives and for the future, but also you you also focus on making sure people understand and truly have an understand, particularly in this country, the perceptions and misperceptions about what life is like in some African nations. And also the flip side of that is understanding when folks come to this country, understanding the role that black Americans have played in the shaping of this country. You see both yes. being inf- influential here. Absolutely. First and most, you know, you talk about a stereotype, making Ethiopians a stereotype. I had to live with, with, with this image of, you know, oh, what was like in Ethiopia? Were you the starving child? I've mm-hmm. heard that. Really? Uh, and and oh my goodness, yes. Mm-hmm. At the particularly, you know, in the early nineties and in in late eighties, that there was a very image of Ethiopia that was painted uh, and that was far from the truth. You know, yes, there was the fact there were Africa has so many challenges. Ethiopia had so many challenges in, in, in so many ways, but not all of us who came from Africa were, uh, you know, starved children mm-hmm. or in, in, it's just a way of like this mentality. Oh, we, are here to save you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is sort of actually very, I find it now a form of manipulation. I don't know, you rob us our raw materials mm-hmm. you take from us and now you're going to come back and say, you're going to save us. Um, you know, it's all of those things. And I'm trying to educate my children um, how the world sees uh, Africa. And that is why it's important to me to join like Georgia State University and mm-hmm. speak with the diaspora programs because Africa is the future. Mm-hmm. Now we how do we how do we work towards that? Um, I do have to um, also uh, say that African Americans here in America fought for um, every immigrants who touched the American land. Mm-hmm. And I think it is important that the, Afri- the, the diaspora students understand, and I'm sure they do, but I wanted to say, remind them how 
important it is that we acknowledge, we support the African-American community together. We move forward. This are the community that gave us the chance mm -hmm. because Africa did not we were not educated to to think that way because communist government, in my case, mm -hmm. totally uh, did not uh, uh, gave us that kind of education. So those are the kind of things I learned. And how do I, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, help others understand, uh, particularly those who just arrived from Africa? And so, how do they see it? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so you're able to give them a more balanced and accurate history of black Americans in this country? That, well, yeah. I am. Yes, I'm trying <laughs> to my best. Sounds like knowledge. you're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm still learning, particularly about racism and how it exists and that covert racism. Well, that, now, Galila, we could have a whole nother show on that, but I don't I want know. you to, I don't okay, want you to get the emails that are meant for me. <laughs> <laughs> microaggression i mean there's a lot of this uh that that those invisible way of how uh triggering um racism comes in such different shape and form and sometimes you're not even prepared to 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 deal with it because it catches you in a certain most unexpected ways and so you know hopefully i i will be at service to georgia state universities and I'm really excited to come back uh, to Atlanta. And when you're here also, not only in speaking with the students and sharing your stories and sharing about all the work that you do, it's also a celebration too, because in Atlanta has a very sizable Ethiopian uh, community here. You Will you have a chance to meet with some folks while you're here? I will. Saturday morning, I believe I will be meeting with the Ethiopian community. I'm so excited yeah. to have some Ethiopian food, which is, <laughs> I know my husband is the chef, but what, for me, my soul food is Ethiopian food. So I'm really excited. So wait, wait, wait. I want to be clear now. You're saying Wolfgang cannot bring the Ethiopian cuisine in the house, so he doesn't do it quite right. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> I do that. I do. Let's make that clear. I do the Ethiopian <laughs> food cooking. So uh, he actually loves it. Yeah, he does. That's great. And uh, also, I, I thought it was very interesting, too, because in, in, in all the excitement about your visit here and what you're going to be doing with Georgia State, um, is it possible you think that your kids might want to attend Georgia State or are you not going to push it on them yet? You know, we're too early right now. Yeah. Um, if Well, not. Not quite for my youngest, who is 16 and a half, and my oldest one, he is um, he is a producer, music, you know, wants to go into music. Okay. So we will see what he wants to take, maybe a year gap, maybe uh, he might, might, might want to go to overseas, to Spain mm -hmm. or England to sort of explore for a year before he goes to university. Um, and uh, it would be my dream if they are interested <laughs> in going to Georgia State University. But you know, I have a, a, a my parenting way is I let them lead me, uh, and then I support them. I don't try to push my dream, my journey, what they have to do, uh, uh, project onto to them. I'm very careful about that because so, my journey is different than theirs 
And uh, so whatever they wanted to, they choose to do, I'm I'm there to support them. Absolutely. That's what's up. And speaking of your journey, Galila, as we wrap up, how do you sum up your journey so far and what you've been able to do and what you continue to do in helping so many, so many others? Oh, wow. Um, hopefully to be able to do more, uh, to leave the world better than I found it. So I can be an inspirational and leading by an example to my children so they too could do the very same thing. The world needs more of a good good healing at the moment and and year to come, you know. Absolutely. That's a great way to end this conversation. Galila Puck is a partner and global creative director for the Wolfgang Puck Group of Companies. She's coming to Atlanta this week for a visit with Georgia State University, now an external board member of GSU Center for Studies on Africa and its diaspora, also known as CSAT. Galila, great conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Enjoy your time here in Atlanta. Thank you so much for having me. I cannot wait to, to be there soon. Thank you now. Take care. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It is big business, always has been. Hair care, skin care, and related beauty products. Well, the beauty industry generated well over $528 billion worldwide in 2022. And it's estimated to generate $579.2 billion this year. Now, let's dissect that a little further. Here in the U.S., it's about $46 billion. And let's go even a little further. It's about mm, $7 billion. We talk about hair care, skin care, and beauty products produced for and by black people. And believe it or not, that could even be better. We'll talk about that. And you can still find some of the, what I call the OGs of the beauty industry, you know, like Estee Lauder. And I know some of y'all know what I'm talking about. And raise your hand if your mom combed your hair with Ultra Sheen or Bergamot or my favorite, Blue Magic. Raise your hand. All right. What you raise your hand for? You ain't got no hair. And brands like Rihanna's Fenty Beauty are showcased in major big box stores. And there's also some cultural as well as health and wellness aspects. Think about this. Legislation such as the Crown Act and the FDA's proposal for a ban on hair straightening products that may be tied to ovarian cancer in black women. Well, now there's a streaming docuseries examining just not only the economic power, but the cultural history and current significance of black people within Beauty and the beauty-related industry. It is called The Black Beauty Effect. And joining me now is filmmaker and actress Andrea Lewis. And here in studio, C.J. Faison, the executive producer and founder of Face Forward Productions. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having Yay. us. Yay! Okay. Thank you. Yay. Thank you for having us. <laughs> he, he said you was going to come in like that. Uh, let's begin with those revenue numbers. When you think about the $49 billion, you know, in here in America, and they say seven billion for related to black folks produced for and by black folks. That may sound like a lot, but it could be those numbers could be better. Right. I'll start with you, CJ. Yeah, I, I think you're you're spot on. Right. Those numbers are, are certainly um, impressive at first look and first glance. But what you really um, t- 
touched on is that those numbers could be a lot bigger, right? Because mm-hmm. when we talk about black products and products for black people, such still a very, very small percentage of products that are made and created for black people. And obviously there's an appetite because what we're seeing is as those black founded companies and products go into market, they are supported by the black community and they're doing really, really well. And our doc touches on a lot of those new founders. Andrew, what about you? What do you think? That that number could be even bigger, right? Oh, absolutely. And and we, you know, we talk about that like a little bit within the documentary, just our, our founders, right? The people who are able to start these businesses, but the funding for them to like actually get them to market, get them um, to scale, get them into these spaces where we're all able to have access to them, like the Target, like the CVS and the Walmart, like this is difficult. This is really difficult work. So the Black women that you see, um, the Black people that you see who have been able to get these things, for us mm-hmm. in a market way, um, yeah, it, it is it is hard and and but our our influence is great. So mm-hmm. we absolutely these numbers could look a lot different. Angela, let me stay with you for a moment because I've talked to some black owned beauty brands who said often someone says, oh, you, you need to, you need to come under somebody and let them be you, you're sort of like they're their umbrella. But then you got to give a percentage you know, as opposed to you having being at the top with your brand and not having mm-hmm. to come under someone. And someone said, that's the best way to go. I'm sure you've probably heard that. I don't know if it's true. I'm just saying. I don't know if it's true either. I think I think that's, you know, that that's like any part of our journey. I think when you're pursuing something, like something that's really great, I think people could say that to us, even as filmmakers, like, oh, we're going to need a bigger name or we're going to need somebody else here to kind of uplift our story or like, what's the relevance of our story? I think any founder of, especially in Black Beauty, probably has had somebody say, you're going to need to do this, that, and the other Mm -hmm. in order to get ahead. And I think we've seen people be able to make their mark without doing that. I think the lip bar is like a perfect example of that. Melissa Butler, like she has, she did a lot of work before it was even Mm -hmm. in target, like getting, getting the brand to where it's at um, has been a lot of just her kind of pushing through and not having somebody <laughs> kind of put her brand underneath theirs and, and give them that uplift. And and I and I want to give props here because I think years ago when we saw, I think it was Carol's daughter, which kind of came yep. onto the scene because there, let's be clear, there had been black hair products, as I mentioned. But then when we saw Carol's daughter and in, in like a, a Target and all these other big names, people said, okay, yeah, now we can take notice of that. But also CJ being able with online, I know a lot of folks who make their own hair care products and they sell them online. But you know what they tell me? A lot of my customers are international. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Um, you know, I want to touch on your your, your question around um, the need to go under an umbrella. And I think in a lot of cases, folks are speaking to the properties of distribution, mm-hmm. um, having a larger entity that is able to serve in that way as well as uh, the properties of scale, which usually are related to having capital to even fill a demand, right? Mm -hmm. And so in the instance of of a lip bar, um, Melissa talks about it. You know, she got all of these orders to go into Target and got from being online to Target to actually being in the actual brick and mortar. Mm -hmm. She needs to go and find capital. And that touches on the point that most black people, black businesses suffer from not having access to capital we still comprise less than 3%, I believe, of all the venture capitalist dollars it's, that go it's out. It's less than that. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's talk about this this documentary because you all tackle all of this. You mm-hmm. talk about the good, the bad, and the, the systemic, the challenges that still exist. How did all this come about? 
Angie, I'll let you take it. Yeah. You know, honestly, I always say this is from my lived experience. I am a beauty consumer. I love beauty. I was fortunate to grow up as a child actor in TV and film. And so I got to see beauty from a lot of different perspectives, from being literally in a hair and makeup chair as a kid and, mm -hmm. and seeing somebody struggle or excel at doing my hair and makeup then just from the women in my own family and you know them maybe not having the products for their hair or not having the stuff for their skin tones and also still trying to make the best of their beauty so i found myself as someone who was a fan and an admirer but also really being able to highlight all the women that made me feel beautiful and made me feel seen and and did this great work but at the same time, popular media didn't make me feel that way. Mm. So it was like in my real life, black women were celebrating themselves. But when I would look at magazines, when I would look at TV, I wouldn't get to see that. So I really just I kept saying I wanted a story that celebrated black women and, and our significance from the beauty editors to the founders, to the influencers, to the makeup artists, to the people that I knew were doing the work. Let me let me and I'm, I'm going to use myself. So I'll give you my trouble. The first time I ever did. TV years ago yeah. and I went to I, I won't name the network and I went mm -hmm. to the makeup chair and the person that did not that did my makeup did not look like me that doesn't mean that it was a disaster but it was a disaster <laughs> and <laughs> I mean I'm just being honest mm -hmm. and someone said to me you know next time uh, we'll make sure that a person of not to say that people that who are like not you. black can't do black folk makeup do not send me an email what I'm saying is it was a disaster and the person admitted that they had challenges with understanding the powder and foundation for for a sister with locks like me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that's that's a that's real talk and it's a real experience. That's, I was gonna say we talk about it in in the series. Uh, you know, Amber yeah. Riley. Um, you, many of you may know from Glee. Mm -hmm. She talks about her experience being on the show Glee and how you know the 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 hair um, stylist said, "Hey, black folks' hair," and, and Tiffany Carter as well say, "It's really hard to style black folks' hair," and mm -hmm. um, you know. For Amber, they asked her, it'd be easier if you wore a wig and because her hair was too difficult for them to style. And good for her advocating and saying, hey, I'm one of the stars of this show. And if you guys can't do my hair, then maybe we need to find someone else who can do black folks hair on this show. And it's good for her because oftentimes when you talk about black folks in these spaces, we don't feel we have the confidence to speak up. Right. Yeah. Let me tell you something. If you're going to do my hair, my makeup, you better know what you're doing. That's right. <laughs> I don't care who you mm -hmm. are. Andrew, did you experience that? Uh, oh, I mean, absolutely. I've, I've had it all. I've had the good, the bad. I've had the person who has no idea. I've had the person who, as soon as you walk in, they're like, oh, you're fine. You, you look just fine. Because they, <laughs> mm -hmm. they don't have the, they don't have anything for you. And I think just like CJ said, oftentimes in those spaces, you don't feel like you can speak up. People make you feel like your voice doesn't really matter. Like this thing that you're asking for is just going to be such an, such an ordeal for them to find somebody to do something for you that black people, black women, especially we're so used to, you know, okay, sure. Yep. We're going to politely say thank you. And then we're going to go back to our trailer. We're going to go back to a bathroom and fix it ourselves. And, and good for Amber knowing that absolutely, I don't have to do that. I can I can say something right now. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, because in the documentary, you all go down this road and it's about the term black don't crack. Take a listen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think most black doesn't crack. 
I think <laughs> it's a cute notion and I think it makes us feel good. Most of us look a lot younger than we actually are. I'm actually 87 years old. <laughs> so I hear black don't crack all the time and it's not true. <laughs> it doesn't crack love, but it can sag. Sometimes I feel like it takes away from like the fact that we still got to take care of our skin. Ooh, who who want to go first? CJ? <laughs> CJ, you take it. <laughs> it's my favorite clip of the whole series. Yeah. I love it. I had no idea. And I think many of us feel like it originated from our grandmothers. And it did not. And it did not. Tell them the history of it. So the term actually originated um, from a slave owner's wife who was observing the way that black folks skin that were working the field didn't crack, didn't crinkle, and they didn't age in the same way that her skin and, and her family member's skin had. And then she journaled um, in her journal. And so it's documented, it's not speculation, that black doesn't crack. And from, you know, we got a hold to that term. And in the way that we do as a community, we embrace it and we use it, you know, to empower ourselves. Okay. But like we say in the doc, we got to take care of our skin. Absolutely. And um, it's going to take a lot more than just soap and water and jergens right. uh, to carry us through. So, yeah. Because we be moisturized. <laughs> Vaseline. We will Vaseline ourselves. Though, but we, we need a little bit more, right? Let me tell you something. If you have not had your grandmother or your mother talk about your ashy elbows and your ashy knees, you That's have right. not lived. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, Andrew, I want to come back to you for a moment because with this docuseries also – not only explaining some some origin terms like that, but also mm-hmm. highlighting some of those who have been influential in this industry. And throughout this all, you all might inspire some other folks to get in get in on this five hundred billion dollar worldwide <laughs> industry here. Absolutely. I think that's probably been um, one of my favorite responses to it, to be quite honest to, for you, like to see people being like, oh, wait a minute, like, hey, I, I maybe I should maybe I should get into my kitchen and start mixing up some products, Um, especially men. I love seeing black men come out of seeing the series and recognize like this industry, recognize for the business part of it. And they, so many men are like, you know what? I'm going to take my skincare a little bit more seriously. I'm actually going to look into these products a little bit differently now. Well, let's Um, let's do a test. CJ, are are you taking (laughs) care of your skin? You got a beard there. You you can bald on top, brother. But that's 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 okay though. Because one of my listeners, Tony, he's bald too. So I want you to give Tony some some products, some things he can do to keep that that head together. That's right. I am a Kills loyalist. Okay. Um, and, okay. and I use Kills uh, moisturizing oil, 24-hour um, SPF moisturizer to go on top of it. I wash my face every night with Kills uh, face wash. Um, my, as it relates to my head, we shave our head, but you also have to moisturize it because it is skin, your scalp. And so I moisturize Moisturize, moisturize, moisturize. I moisturize in the morning. I moisturize at night. And I wash moisturize my more than I do. Yeah. What about that beard? How do you keep it looking so great? So I um I actually use a black-owned product here out of Atlanta, and I I use their uh their beard moisturizer. You, you can say it. Um, Black Kings. Okay. Yep. Right. I use their moisturizer. Me and my son. All right. And Andrea, is there any uh, tips that you use now? I I love my mother. My mother would make her own oatmeal mask. Did you, wow. I don't know if your mothers or grandmothers did that, but my mother would make an oatmeal mask. And the first time I saw it, it scared me, but now I, I get it. But, you know, we have these these regimens that we go through. Um, Andrew, I'm looking at your skin. It, it's yeah. beautiful. 
You know what? My mom was very simple. I I like grew up in like a Vaseline house. We were Vaseline <laughs> ambassadors before being an ambassador was a thing. Um, and that's still my go-to. But I think it's more, I think the thing is washing your face in the night at the end of the night, you know, like making sure that you're going to bed with clean skin and moisturized skin. And then SPF, this is something that is so taboo within the Black community of just putting on sunscreen. And we've all been taught that we don't need it, that our melanin is is the protection. And it's not, it's not, it's not enough. And we don't understand what even skin cancer looks like on us. And so the importance, even to this day, yesterday, I, I was out with a friend and I said, I forgot my sunscreen. And he was like, it's okay though, like your melanin. And I was like, no, it's not okay. It's not okay at all. And he knows I got a documentary about skincare. So yeah, I think understanding that putting on sunscreen, protecting our skin from the sun is still very important for us. Even if we, you know, yes, we come from Africa, we come from the Caribbean, we come from these islands, we still need to protect ourselves. So that, that's been my big thing for my skincare in the last little while. And we should note also too, because of hair texture and hairstyles, mm -hmm. we now have legislation. We know about the Crown Act, but we still have instances even back in September a Texas teenager was suspended for his locks hairstyle. They said it didn't meet the, you know, the requirements for the school. Yeah, CJ, you're shaking your head. I'll let you take it. It's just really disheartening and disturbing that black folks um, are policed in such a way for our appearance and the way that we choose to throw, show up. Um, it's also disheartening that the Crown Act hasn't been passed at the federal level. level. Mm -hmm. um, it has been passed at different states, but there's still so much work to be done. And the fact that the Crown Act even has to exist to say mm -hmm. that you cannot discriminate on black folks because of the way they wear their hair. Not just black folks, but it is geared towards black folks. But people in general can't be discriminated on because of the way they wear their hair, for locks, for braids, for different things. And there have been countless cases that have come to light um, based off of it. And actually, A.C. Eggleston-Bracey and, and the Dove team have been the founders and champions of this act as it works its way through each state and hopefully will be passed at the federal level. But all in all, it's just extremely disheartening that we're still having these types of conversations and this type of discrimination in America in 2023. And everybody loves locks and everybody wears locks, but mm -hmm. leave it at that. Uh, Andrea Lewis, uh, what's next for you in terms, because you have a lot going on, but I know this this docuseries is bringing a lot of folks. Is there a room for a follow-up? Like, because there's a lot to do with hair. Mm -hmm. Hair. I know. You know what? It's funny because it's like the black beauty effect in itself was this big monster for us to tackle. There's so much to cover when it comes to black beauty. And what we've been really blessed with is being able to kind of continue the conversation going forward, being able to have activations, have events, be able to meet with people in real life and and just con continue this conversation um, as much as possible. So being on Netflix is probably like the highlight of my year because <laughs> it's given it access to so many people. Like you had mentioned earlier, it's given it global access, being able to have people in the UK and New Zealand all over the world now be a part of this conversation that affects us all so um talking about it with you this this is this <laughs> stuff we're doing like this is this is it and, and i have locks and i'm i am a yes. i am a shea butter and and lemongrass sister that's right you know a yeah. little, little bit of lavender in there a little <laughs> tea tree oil you know that that's that's all i do you mm -hmm. know i keep it simple i love it <laughs> yeah what's next for you cj um you know this is a franchise and so this is the first installment of that franchise and so we're actively developing 
um, the follow-up, to your point, um, working across the medium of entertainment with a number of different projects. But the ultimate goal is to continue to serve our community, give visibility, representation, et cetera. And, you know, we're excited to be on Netflix, but we're not on Netflix. It is not for Xfinity. Um, black experience on Xfinity, believing in this project and bringing, bringing it to light so that a Netflix could see what it looked like and stood up, up and mm-hmm. pick it up. That's All right. right. C.J. Faison, the executive producer and founder of Face Forward Productions and also filmmaker and actress Andrea Lewis. Thank you so much for a fun conversation, an important conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you. Thank you for giving us the platform. <laughs> And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson and Daniel Rizal and Tiffany Griffin and Sawyer Vanderwerth. They all have great hair. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. If you missed any of today's program, it is always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as on our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories, is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. Hey y'all, I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.